Hello and welcome to the Sunshine House podcast. My name is Zanny Louise and I'm a children's book author, writing mentor and run courses for writers on my website zannylouise.com if you want to come by and check those out. This podcast is being recorded on Bundjalung land in northern New South Wales. Today I'm chatting with Lauren Draper who is a YA contemporary fiction author who has written the most beautiful novel. It's called The Museum of Broken Things. It's published by Text. It was shortlisted in the Text Prize 2020. It is now a real-life book. It's got a fabulous cover as most of the textbooks do and it is such a good read. I came by this book because it's in lots of the book lists from last year and this year. Uh, it's it's one of those covers you see a lot on social media because it's getting lots of acclaim. And I thought, yep, sounds interesting. Let's give it a read. Could not put it down. It's such a beautiful book. It's exactly the sort of book I would love. It's teen, YA, romance, mystery. It's got so many wonderful threads. It's also really sensitive. It's sassy. It's witty. It's got some historical elements to it like there's so much going on in this novel but not in a convoluted way in a really genuine light warm way this is the sort of novel where you're going to make friends with the characters they're probably going to live inside your head for a long time after you've finished it so highly recommend this book and really enjoyed my conversation with Lauren today hi Lauren how are you Good. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I'm absolutely stoked to talk to you, actually, because I have just finished The Museum of Broken Things, the cover of which I've been seeing a lot of because it's, you know, on various book lists, uh, award lists. Uh, It's been in bookshops everywhere, getting great reviews. And it was one of those rare occasions where the experience really does live up to or even exceed the hype. So, I'm a big fan of contemporary fiction anyway, but your book is just so good. Congratulations. Thank you so much. It's such high praise coming from someone who reads so much of it as well. (laughs) I do read a lot of it, but I, yeah, I don't know. And it's your debut book. So it's your first book like this. I've got so many questions about that. But I suppose, firstly, uh, tell us a little bit about the Museum of Broken Things for those who haven't read it yet. Amazing. Uh, well, it follows a 17-year-old girl named Reese who has recently moved back to a beachside town, sort of running away from something in her past that the reader's not quite sure about. Uh, and she's really stuck. She doesn't really know where her place is in the world anymore. She's left all her friends behind, feeling very isolated, in a little bit of a prison of her own making. And then she inherits a mysterious artifact from her grandmother who has recently passed. And that changes the trajectory of the year that she expected to have. And then it's also a little bit about making new friends, deciding on your future, some family mystery. Um, and it's it's a little bit of everything, which is how I like to describe it. <laughs> it is a little bit of everything. It's actually unusual to see that mystery, I think, woven into contemporary fiction. Are you a mystery reader yourself? Do you know, I'm actually not a crime reader, but I do love a cosy mystery in young adult novels, Mm. in particular because I was so conscious when I was growing up that when I was reading books, I really didn't want them to be set at school, even when they were teenagers or school-age kids, because I was like, well, I spend all day at school and it's so boring. It's the least interesting part of my life. 
And I always loved when books sort of gave you a little bit of a cheeky plot device to keep kids busy, even if it's a little bit of a stretch, which we can take some um, liberty in young adult fiction, I think. So the mystery is there. I think it's a really fun way to, to have teens sort of gathering and do things, um, but they're not just doing their homework, which is which is equally important. Um, <laughs> Actually, I noticed that reading it, uh, that there weren't that many scenes at school or in the classroom. And I, I'm like you, I prefer not having to read about school. We all live through school. Yeah, we don't have to read about it as well. And I'm also conscious about that in my own writing too. So thanks. You've given me a good idea for not having to do school scenes. There's so much in this book. I loved it because, yeah, it's it's not just your typical contemporary novel. There's this wonderful mystery woven in. There's themes about uh, female empowerment, acknowledgement, you know, there's history. There's just so many threads. Um, I'm curious about what was the genesis for this book. It's interesting that you point out the threads because I feel like the book came together as a tapestry, except I didn't really have the pattern when I started. So I knew that I wanted to write a contemporary young adult fiction novel because I had been working on a fantasy novel for so long and I was so sick of researching things, I was so sick of researching what roofs were made of and what underpants looked like. And I was like, you know what, I really want to write something young and fun in my voice. And I wanted to write a novel about grief, but I simultaneously didn't want it to be sad and I, or not overwhelmingly sad. And so I think that the threads of romance, the threads of mystery, the threads of Reese's family history came together in bits and pieces to sort of alleviate the tension, the heaviness that I was concerned that the book could have. And I really didn't want to put teenagers off reading it if it felt really sort of overwhelmingly ominous. And so it was an interesting little project that sort of weaved and wove and I really didn't expect the final shape of it I think until it was done and I thought well that's happened and <laughs> it's half decent so <laughs> yeah it's more than half decent it's fabulous well that's actually really amazing uh that you were able to bring all those threads together in such a balanced way and I forgot to mention the romance because of course that's such a central part of the plot and yeah, romance could potentially be a bit cringy in a teen YA type book, but you've handled it so well. And it was one of the few books where I really, really did want it to work out. You know, you just really cared for all these characters, but particularly those two at the centre of the story. It, it's kind of got a bit of a medical drama overtone as well. Um, what was the inspiration or the purpose for that idea? I was really intrigued by that. That was such, I think, a bit of coincidence of timing and place in that I was working at um, the University of Melbourne many, many years ago and I was looking for something in particular in the library and I took a wrong turn and I ended up in this weird little display section where they actually had some of the items mentioned in the book on display. So it's like little bits of brain, weird little devices, and I was like, this is so weird. <laughs> I have to use this one day. And I just sort of had that in the back of my mind of like weird science and sort of the way that science has become evolved and particularly women's involvement in what we understand to be medical procedures. And I, I really wanted to use it one day and having that family history with Reese really felt like a way to both explore past and present um, in a way that wasn't sort of overly obvious to the reader, I think. Mm, it's definitely what happens and it's done through Reese's relationship with her grandma so although we never meet her grandma in real time we do get to know so much about her and she is just such a wonderful character. 
I actually feel bad that she's not in the book because so many <laughs> people have read it and been like, oh my God, the grandma's an amazing character. I was like, oh, I really, I probably should have waited to kill her off a little bit longer, which is oh, a terrible thing to say. Well, but yeah, I'm no, glad. it makes sense that you dropped in when you did and, and yeah. right just after she's passed away. But yeah, I, I but you still knew so much about her and you understood so much about her because Reese and she had such a strong connection. It was so important to me because I am very close with my grandmothers and I think that the feeling that your connection with your family doesn't disappear just because somebody's gone is so important and that a lifetime of love and a legacy of your relationship together remains. And for teenagers and young people who are often experiencing losing somebody for the first time, maybe when they're in high school, maybe primary school, I think it's really important to highlight the fact that that relationship to you is still so important and that it still affects you and that it's still part of your daily life, but the person just might not physically be there anymore. And I really wanted that to be a really strong part of the book. Yeah, I really connected with that as well. We live in what was my grandma's house. And even if we didn't live in her house, I would think about her every single day for one reason or another, whether it's the food she made or the music she listened to, because such an important part of my life growing up, um, my relationship with her. So yeah, I really appreciated that personally. I really do wish that I could live in my grandmother's old house because it was very (laughs) here and there was crystals everywhere and little odd bits and pieces. But I completely agree that I think it's a relationship you almost don't realise how important it is until you're older and you appreciate what your grandparents and your parents must have been going through as you become your own young adult and then a proper adult, I think, Mm -hmm. as well. Yeah, definitely. And actually thinking back, particularly in those teenage years, because I used to go on sleepovers on my own to her house and we used to have our little rituals that only belong to us. And that's that one little step outside of your immediate family, but it's still really safe. It's still really important in your life. And yeah, it's, it's really nice actually to think about that and talk about that. Definitely. It feels a little bit magical. It does. Yeah, it does. You know, your first novel, and well done for pulling it off so well in your first novel, because some authors that takes, you know, many attempts. Uh, What what was your journey to getting this book from that inception of an idea to a tapestry to actually becoming a actual book? Well, I touched a little bit earlier on that I had been working on the manuscript that sort of wasn't working out. And I'd had this idea in the back of my mind. I could sort of picture Reese and I could picture the town and I knew that the grandmother would be important. And I sort of had a few of the elements of the stories there and just little bits of dialogue that would come to me occasionally. And I was sort of jotting them down. Um, And then one day I saw that the text prize had been announced. And because I work in publishing, I'm in this really awkward position of being incredibly privileged to understand how the acquisition process works, but also in the awkward position of knowing that it's really difficult to give your colleagues something to read because they can identify what is good and bad fiction. You don't want to go to work one day Mm -hmm. where your colleagues sort of read your book and gone, oh, it's actually not very good. So I thought, great, I'll apply to the text prize. Nobody will will know me there. Um, We'll just see what happens. And it gives me a deadline. And my best case scenario at that time was thinking maybe I'll get on the long list and that will help me get an agent or sell it somewhere else and then I'll know whether or not the book is any good Um, and I haven't embarrassed myself at work. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it became an absolute race against time because I think from first word on the page to submission was probably nine months but I really only had a good six-month chunk of actual working time once it got down to it. So it was pretty frantic. And I think in many cases, I didn't really have time to second guess the direction of the story because I I knew I I had to get it done. It had to go in the post. So it was an interesting way of working. I don't know that I recommend it, um, but we finished. We got it done. 
That is amazing. Uh, and you got, well, not just on the long list, you got on the short list, didn't you? Yes, I yeah. did. Right. Right. <laughs> and then from there was conversation about publishing. With yes, so I, I got the call um, from the editor, Samantha Forge, who was there at the time, and she called me and said, uh, I already knew the book was on the short list, and she said, um, unfortunately, you haven't won, but we'd still be really interested in publishing the book. Would you okay. like to publish with us? And, of course, I immediately said yes particularly based off the strength of texts, young adult publishing. Mm -hmm. I was so interested in publishing with them anyway, and that was really just dream come true phone call to have not won but to still be able to publish with them was incredible. Oh, what an amazing compensation prize. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good thing about the shortlist is that it does, you know, introduce them to some potentially great work uh, beyond just the winner. So, yeah, it's a great, a great program to have in Australia. You create such vivid setting and characters and, and I almost don't want to pick it apart because to me it feels so real and it uh, really does exist in my imagination in a way that, you know, these are real people. I, I, I can't even understand understand that they're not real people um and that wonderful opening scene of Reese <laughs> jumping off the pier in her amazing dress what a great scene and what a great um meet cute moment when she meets um this gorgeous lifesaver Gideon <laughs> of course <laughs> there has to be a gorgeous lifesaver you know in the town where she moves to it's it's a great plot very line. convenient for her <laughs> very convenient yes and and why is he so great like you know he's just so gorgeous he's so he's so kind he's so awesome like how many guys like this exist in these little remote towns I wonder it was actually really important to me to show boys and young men who were kind and who were soft and who were caring as a bit of an antithesis to this morally grey sort of anti-hero archetype which I think is really fun and I I'm certainly not going to say that I haven't fallen for the villain type before but I really loved this idea of, of showing that you can have really good relationships with boys who are soft and kind and gentle and that they do exist um, and that that is a very valuable, lovely thing to experience as somebody in your first or second, you know, formative relationship in your younger years. Yeah, look, I, I thought that was really lovely. And, yeah, especially for teenage, you know, girls, boys, you know, knowing that those people are out there and, you know, having them fictionalised, you know, of course, is is one thing. But, yeah, I think that's a really lovely thing to give kids that, that understanding. I think it's beautiful. One thing I noticed about the book too was the dialogue was just so realistic and so witty uh, and sharp. What What's your background with writing good dialogue? Is this just a gift you're born with? I'm very sorry to say that a large chunk of this dialogue is in fact the way that my friends and I speak. <laughs> and I think that that was why I was so drawn to contemporary fiction because as I said, I was I was tired of research. I was tired of sort of really struggling to find that historic voice that I wanted to play with language the way that I knew it. But in saying that, I do have to say that we grew up with some incredibly funny, witty, high-level dialogue, um, sort of sitcom shows, like if you think about The O.C. and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, that really informed what short, sharp dialogue could be. So in as much as it is very authentically the voice that I have sort of known my whole life, it's also informed by pieces of media that have really given us those kind of giggles over the years. Oh, that's interesting. Well, it's really handy that you and your friends are able to talk like that because they make great characters on the page. <laughs> <laughs> it's also a skill to take that that exists in real life and, and put it into fiction. I don't think everyone can do that. So this setting, have you got a relationship yourself to small coastal towns? 
do my um, family, and particularly my dad's side of the family, are from a small coastal town. And I don't want to tell you where it is because <laughs> what I wanted from this book is for everybody to feel like Hamilton could be the town that they went to as a kid. And I think yeah. it's such an Australian experience to get hauled off to some like tiny coastal town by the beach with your family. And I really wanted the experience of reading this for everybody to feel that almost magical sense of, oh, I know where this is. Like, this is special to me. This is the place where I grew up. But I do think there's something very enchanting about the small town experience. And it was such a lovely thing for me to be able to go and visit those places and really grow up in those rural areas. There's such charm to them. And it's such a fun place to set a book for someone new to explore that area. Yeah, and the setting, I think, resonates outside of an Australian experience too because Hamilton really could have been anywhere. That was the lovely thing about it. Really could have been anywhere. And I think the thing that gives it away that it's Australia is that at one point Miles says, I love a Coles chocolate mud cake. And that is is the peak Australian growing up experience. (laughs) (laughs) And if ever, or maybe it's already published other places, they can find their own equivalent for Coles chocolate mud cake. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of Miles and, in fact, Miles and Ava and the other supporting cast around uh, Reese, there's such a vibrant cast and, again, they all feel so real. They really, really do leap off the page. How much work are you putting into developing these characters kind of uh, do you keep notes about these characters or does it all just exist in your head? I had a really clear picture of what, Miles was going to be like quite early um, just because I felt like Reese is going through so much, Gideon is going through so much, they've got so much heaviness in their life, they really needed a levity to sort of oppose that and, and give them a sort of a moment to exhale and to breathe and to be teenagers. And so I sort of knew Miles was there for comic relief a little bit, but then Ava was really meant to be a supporting character that kind of came in and out. But I realised that I'd sort of deprived Reese of really strong female friendships in the present. And we know that she's had them in the past. But I think growing up as a young girl, your female friendships are so powerful and so important to you. I really wanted her to have somebody to lean on. And Ava really came into her own as the book went on from that aspect, someone that she really could trust that she there's sort of a few moments in the book where you find that Reese is kind of brutally honest with her a little bit more so than she is with anybody else. And I do have to say, everyone asks about the sibling rivalry. I love my sister. We're very close. That is all completely fictionalised. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think they're a really fun duo in the end. They are. And I love that their talents are also really celebrated. And, and you know, it's not like a nerdy thing or something. like. They're just awesome kids. You know, I'd love to know a couple of kids like this in my community. It's really fun. And, and I have to say, I have pinched a little bit of personal history here and that all of my friends played music growing up and that we really lucky to have a strong program at our school where we had orchestras and it's such a fun way to be and that there really was no ego or sort of judgment around that at our school. And we were really lucky to have those kind of like artsy kids, talented kids, sporty kids. And it was actually quite a nice ecosystem to sort of come of age within. In terms of books like this, are you a big reader yourself of um, YA contemporary fiction? Absolutely. And I would say that I overwhelmingly read young adult titles and that I actually very rarely read proper grown-up books. And in fact, I think it's flipped as I got older. The older I get, the more young adult I read. Yeah. Um, and partly that's because I read a lot of sort of literary nonfiction for work and I sort of want to relax afterwards. But I just think the age group is so fun. The hijinks are so silly. The stakes are higher. The emotions are, you know, 
you're exploring things for the first time, for the last time. I just think it's such an incredibly fun and diverse readership. You run the whole gauntlet of human experience in young adult. Yeah, you really do. And look, I totally align with your reading taste and also all the movies I watch. If it has coming of age in the description, I'm like, yep. (laughs) I'm a tragic routine drama. Sign me up. (laughs) Sign me up every time. Was there any one book that really turned you into this person who loves books, literature, is a professional editor yourself and a writer? There's no one book, but growing up, both of my grandmothers used to buy me secondhand books and I have boxes and boxes of Emily Rodder and The Babysitter's Club. And then as I got older, it was John Marsden and Lemony Snicket. And then I got older again and it was Twilight and Divergent, but really where I started to see exceptional contemporary young adult literature or started to recognise it was sort of when I'd graduated uni and I remember reading Nina Kenwood's It Sounded Better in My Head and just thinking that book is absolutely phenomenal. And that was almost part of what motivated me to submit to the text prize because that's when I started looking at their list, reading a lot of their historical publishing, and it was just that just got me that I was hook, line and sinkered. And um Kath Crowley, Melina Marquetta, we're so fortunate. We have so much talent in Australia. Yeah, we really do. We're very fortunate. And it's it's great that all these writers like yourself are bringing to life these Australian, in inverted commas, experiences, you know, these Melbourne experiences, these small coastal towns that really get to exist in fiction and transgress our immediate time but also you know go overseas and have other readers sort of experience our worlds as well which is really beautiful and what about uh other novels are you do you have time to write now around your other work (laughs) i did the clever thing which was accidental in that i wrote the second book before the first one was out Uh and i say accidental because of course it was during the pandemic when i was working from home And all of a sudden, without the commute, I had a lot more time to write and there was nowhere else for me to go. So I had the space as well. So I've written the second book, but I'm I'm really struggling, I think, with the concept of a third book. And I'm not sure if that's because now the first one's out in the world and I feel like I didn't get the sophomore slump, but I've got whatever the the third one is. Um, (laughs) Absolutely will always be prioritising that time in my life, um, especially right now where I've absolutely got the privilege to be able to do that with my role um, at work is just I'm very lucky. Yeah well it sounds like you've got a great balance there with your editing work and with your you know amazing talented ability to write. (laughs) Um, It's been such a pleasure to get to talk to you about this absolutely beautiful book. Uh, It's going to be one of my favorites definitely. Uh, Yeah so thanks for coming into the Sunshine House today. Thank you so much for having me this has been wonderful. Thank you for listening to the Sunshine House podcast. This episode was produced by Virtual Creatrix. Music was written by Gregor Hutchka and produced by Brett Canning. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, leave us a review, a rating and share with your friends. All of those wonderful things are much appreciated and help us find new listeners. If you are a creator yourself and would like to tap into a very supportive community, you can search up the Sunshine House Writers and Creatives on Facebook. We will let you in the door and inspire you, support you, all of those wonderful things. I have a new course available called the Sunshine House Children's Book Course, which is a collection of skills and knowledge 
to cover all sorts of aspects of the children's book industry. If you're interested in checking that out and doing a course from the comfort of home, have a look at my website, zannylouise.com. It's been wonderful spending this time with you today. Have a lovely, sunshiny day.